Here's, what I, here's why I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are such um, an important time of the week. It's a sacred time of the week, actually, because it was Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of the grave. And so when we kind of join in heaven's song and we just shout praises to Jesus, we're celebrating his victory and what he's done. And uh, you guys know if you've been around um, that I, I love the scriptures and, and I believe that the best way to go forward is for us to order our lives after the teachings of Jesus. And so um, every single week, in addition to singing, we also open up our Bibles and study it together. And so that's what we're gonna do now. Actually, it was funny because during rehearsal, before the gathering started, um, Danny was like kind of telling the worship team what was gonna happen and kind of the flow of the morning and stuff like that. And then he like, he, he, both he and Brooke have this like imitation of me where they're like, and then Andrew will come up and be like, okay, everybody open your Bibles. <laughs> and so anyways, I don't know what I did to earn that impression, but you both do that all the time. And I gotta be honest, I'm a little bit hurt, but... Um, <laughs> But I'm not ashamed of being a Bible nerd. I'm kind of, I, I like that that's my rep around here. Um, so let's uh, stand, you guys, because we're going to be uh, reading the scriptures. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. This is what the scripture says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Don't worry, I'm going to explain. Clearly, no one relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Awesome. So today, we are going to talk about curses. <laughs> Some of you are like, man, I brought a friend today. You just made it really weird. Uh, I allow me to redeem myself, okay? You don't actually have to worry because this passage is yet another example that God is really, really good. And the story of the Bible is just more beautiful than, than any other story from literature in history. Shakespeare even believed that, actually. He was on record saying that he believed the story of the Bible is the most compelling story in all of literature. And it's not just a story, is it? It's real history that's calling you to enjoy God today and is calling you to join his vision for a beautiful future. And if you've been around during this uh, letter that we've been studying over the last couple of months, it's all about like staying true to the gospel. Staying true to the gospel, that Jesus is king and everyone who trusts in him, whether female or male, non-Jewish or Jewish, rich or poor, everyone is on equal ground. And therefore, by extension, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying everyone who trusts in Jesus is worthy of me devoting myself to them in familial devotion as my sisters and brothers. In other words, I don't have the right to require someone else 
to become like me before I commit to love them as family. I'm actually being called by God to love my sisters and brothers, especially the ones who are different from me. And Paul says to miss that point is to actually miss the whole gospel because we're putting something else, some other thing that's meant to be secondary, our ideology, our politics, or our uh, culture or, 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 or ethnicity or whatever, we're putting other things in front of Jesus and the gospel. So what we've been like going after together as a church, and one of the main reasons why we've been doing this series is because we want you and all of us really um, to have the wisdom from scripture to resist the temptation to allow culture wars to infiltrate the church. Because let's be honest, man, like there has been so much going on in society and I believe that our society is pressuring you now more than any time in my lifetime to sort of join a homogenous tribe, to join a group of people that basically think like you, look like you, talk like you, are in the same sort of socioeconomic strata as you and all of that. But what Jesus is inviting us into is something that's radically different from that. He says, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. And by design, the kingdom of God is multi-ethnic and diverse in every single way. So if we are like accurately and wholeheartedly going after the gospel of Jesus, it's going to mean that we reorder even how we do our relationships so that we're not just subject to that regressive homogenous tribe kind of viewpoint. We actually open our arms wide open to people who are quite different from us. That's what it means to be orthodox in the gospel, according to Paul. And last week, if you were here, you might remember we sort of talked through the story of a guy named Abraham. And uh, lots of you are very familiar with the story of Abraham, but it functions really importantly in the story of this letter. So um, after humans rebel against God, God sets out on his mission Uh, to redeem or to make right. This is language that by now should be familiar to you. God is setting out to make right what was lost because of sin and rebellion and all of that. And the way that he does this is extremely uh, interesting and I think telling to how God works and his strategy. So he's saying, this is how I'm going to make things right. When God begins his redemption project, the way that he begins is by making a promise to bless a family. He makes a promise to bless a family. This is God's strategy. Genesis 12 kind of lays it out for us. You might remember God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. He says you're going to have many kids. You won't even be able to count them. He's talking about his descendants. And then he says you're going to inherit this land of promise. And then he says this, very importantly, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So in other words, God's strategy to redeem the world is to bless this family who in turn will carry God's blessing to the rest of the families of the earth. So the idea of God's calling and the idea of God's blessing is not that we would, again, as our culture has gotten it wrong so many times, or the church has gotten it wrong so many times, we've looked at our calling and blessing as almost like a badge of religious pride. Like we have the right version of spiritual reality and you don't. 
basically. And unfortunately, that spiritual pride and religious pride is very pervasive in the world, not just with our faith, but with other world religions. But the idea that God is blessing Abraham, he's blessing Abraham not to uh, be a source of pride for him, but so that he would be blessed in order to bless others and to really, quite honestly, unite the families of the earth under Yahweh. And the scripture says that... um, Abraham trusted God against all of those odds that were stacked up against him. By the time he received this promise, he was 75 years old. By the time he had his first son, he was 100. And after Abraham trusts God, the rest is history. So that origin story that um, I've now repeated a couple of times during the series is extremely important because this is your spiritual lineage too. This is your spiritual lineage. This is your family of faith. Last week's passage, verse 9, says that if you have the faith of Abraham, then you are a child of Abraham. So in other words, we are a part of that blessing. You are a part of that promise that God has blessed, has, has said that he's going to bless the world through Abraham's line. You are a part of that promise. You are um, in that promised family, that blessed family. Um, so, and the reason for that, of course, is, again, we talked about this for uh, a couple of different points throughout the series so far, that um, the righteous are marked out by faith. We read it again in today's passage as well. The righteous are marked out by faith. So in order to join the family of Abraham, you have the faith of Abraham, which is the trust in God, um, even when it doesn't make sense, and to take part in his faith that carried him along. So our responsibility... Um, and I, I hope that, w- that we can receive this and, and not just kind of hear it as a nice idea, but to actually embrace it as our responsibility, is for us to live into that ancient promise. And by that I mean we carry God's presence and his blessing to the rest of the world. And this is why it's so critically important, both in this letter, but also in, um, the, the, uh, in society, it's important that the family of God is diverse. Because the mutual welcome and shared worship of this Jesus-believing multi-ethnic family of God, this is the outward, visible, tangible sign that God is doing what he promised and always promised he would do. And so this is our treasure and, quite honestly, our great privilege to step into carrying God's presence and blessing to the world. So being a part of, like, a homogenous tribe, this is what humans always have done to feel safe and comfortable in a chaotic world, but it's regressive in light of the cross. In light of the cross, we belong now to God's new, multi-ethnic, diverse family, and that represents the life of faith that God has always had in mind that is both present and future. So we devote ourselves to Christians who are much different from us as a function of our believing in the whole gospel. Are you with me? Awesome. Okay, so all of that background is baked into our conversation for today. And this is what the scripture says from uh, verse 10. It says this, uh, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, everyone, uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Okay, so um, he's essentially continuing, Paul is continuing his argument uh, between following the law versus the life of faith. 
Again, we don't have time to go back and to look at all of that, but if you listen to our podcast, you can catch up. Essentially what Paul's doing here is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is like the very end of what the Jews called the Torah or what's known in, in, in our Bibles as the law. And he's essentially saying that if you're relying on the law in order to be saved, then you really have to pay attention to and rigorously obey the whole thing. Otherwise, you, you're, you're cursed. Now, when we read that word curse in the Bible, there are all kinds of images that come rushing and popping into our minds. Are we saying that God is up in heaven, like furious at, at us, angry and mean-spirited, and he's like lobbing down these really horrible punishments on innocent people who are basically committing these minor infractions? And the reality, of course, is that's not true, but that's what a lot of people think. A lot of people read that word curse, and that's what comes into their mind. Are we talking about an angry, vicious, mean-spirited God here? That's what a lot of your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors think about the God of the Bible, and it's understandable because there's been all kinds of misinformation about the God of the Bible. That's not the real story. You know that, but let me explain why you can be confident. See, the law was given by God as a good guide. The law was like so that things would go well between us as the people of God, that we would care for each other, that we would live in harmony with one another, and that we'd have proper reverence and relationship to God and all of that. So if you read the Bible, or if you read the law, which I think you should, um, it, you, this is what you're going to find. You're going to find a bunch of laws in there, like for example, like if you accidentally harm one of your neighbor's livestock then what you're gonna do is you're gonna replace it and plus a little bit extra for his trouble. It's like simple laws in order to ensure that things go well between us, that we're actually caring for each other. So God is essentially authorizing a way of life that kind of connects with and corresponds with his ethics. So obedience to God is a good thing. It's not because he's vicious and mean and all of that. It's because he's a good God. He wants things to go well between us. And so he authorizes a way of life that goes along with the ethics of God. So the curse is what happens when you disregard God's word. And when you disobey God's word, what happens is that things don't go well. Things don't go well between us. And God in his love is warning his people, when you don't listen and obey me, your life descends into chaos. Your, your life begins to fall apart, fall apart. If you know the story of the Bible, this is what we see. It's played out really all throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the history books of the Old Testament, the large sections that we don't really know what to do with and we quite honestly only read um, you know, when I tell you to turn your Bibles there or whatever. Um, but what you'll find is that like, if you were to read the Bible cover to cover, you'll notice that this story is playing itself out under a guy named King David and his son, King Solomon. Man, there is this beautiful reign of God and the people of God are blessed. There is peace, there is, uni there is unity, there is flourishing. And it's because they were honoring the covenant that God had given them. But then under the next king, King Rehoboam, and then all the way, hundreds and hundreds of years to this guy named King Zedekiah, they were not blessed. They were cursed in the language of Galatians 3. There was disunity. There was, disunity. There was war amongst brothers like infighting, and then there was like domination by their enemies. Their much stronger enemies came and occupied them and hauled them off into exile. And the, the, the reason why that the scripture gives us is because they were ignoring God's word. 
And they, as a result, they were facing the consequences of their misliving. And it wasn't just the small stuff that they were missing. It was, it was intentional. It was prolonged. It was um, willful, idolatrous even in some cases, where they're just disobeying God. So again, uh, the reason I give you this backstory is because it's really important that we have a right view of God. It's not that God has a hair-trigger temper. It's not that God is mean-spirited. He's actually loving and fair. Uh, Exodus chapter 34 details, the, it's known in theology as the character creed of God. When God's self-disclosure statement, when he talks about who he is, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. I am slow to anger and I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who I am. So he says, I'm patient, I'm slow to anger. But then in the next verse, he says, I do not leave the guilty unpunished. I do not leave the guilty unpunished. God allows in, 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 uh, in the scriptures he, uh, and in life, he allows the consequences of our sin, our misliving to sort of catch up with us. Again, not because he's careless or unloving, but because he is. Think about this with me for a moment. Um, God is guiding us back into life with him. And he's like in the, the consequences in order to guide us back into humility, repentance, and loyalty to him. So um, to think about this a, a little bit more deeply, think about if there were not consequences for your misliving. What kind of world would that be? What kind of world if there wasn't some kind of arrangement, if there wasn't some kind of justice for sin? What would that mean in the world? Now, we know that Paul is sort of suggesting that things have changed with the ministry of Jesus, and that's really true, um, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But the principle that we're talking about here is still very active. Like, even later in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And we talk about this with our kids, uh, quite honestly. If you're a parent, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Like when I talk to my kids about lying, like if you regularly lie or exaggerate, then people aren't going to trust you. And if people can't trust you, then you're going to feel really lonely. And when you're lonely and alone, like, man, life is very hard. It's much, we're, that's what we're talking about, just living in the consequences of our misliving. And so God says that when you uh, sow uh, that way, you're going to reap the consequences of that. Hebrews chapter 13 also says that God disciplines those he loves. Again, not because he's angry, mean spirit, it's because he's loving and fair. I think that there are few things on earth that are more dangerous than people who are shielded from the consequences of their misliving. Think with me on this for a moment. Like, for example, I was 16 years old, and I just had gotten my first car, which my parents had taught me how to drive. I'd done driver's ed, and they bought me this uh, car. Um, we were fortunate enough to be in that position, and they bought me this really safe, uh, great car that was very reasonable and um, had good safety ratings and all of that. Um, and then they handed me the keys, and all of a sudden I had all of this crazy freedom. And you remember what that was like when you, you know, got your first car, and all of a sudden you had all of this freedom. And I abused that freedom so badly. 
And it got to the point where I, even though I had had all of the proper training and I knew uh, the laws of the road and everything and my parents had guided me to, uh, to drive responsibly, I was very, very reckless. I drove super fast. I, I went tight around the corners and all of that. We lived out in the country, so I was always speeding until one day I lost control of the car. And I went sliding off the road and I went down this deep embankment and I hit a tree. And if I had not hit the tree, I probably would have flipped and kept rolling and rolling and rolling hundreds of feet down. Who knows if I'd be actually be alive today. And even though I had gotten proper instruction, I had completely ignored all of that instruction because I was reckless. And then I found myself just sitting on the side of the road in insane fear for my life and just my life, my short little 16-year-old life flashing before my eyes and realizing what I had just done and the consequences of that. And um, of course, the paramedics came, checked me out, the car was totaled, and it just caused this huge mess all over the road and all of that. Of course, I missed school. All my friends heard, out, heard about it. I was extremely embarrassed by it. And I remember being a really, I like to think of myself as a tough kid, but I was like weeping in my dad's arms, you know. Um, and it was like this, this life-altering experience for me. And it was really healthy and good for me to feel the responsibility and the weight of that decision and what it meant for my life and potentially other people's lives. So if my parents had just shown up, you know what, that was a hard day, tough day, here's another car, be safe, good luck, that would be an unloving parent because if you shield me from the consequences of my decisions and my misliving, it's just going to keep happening and keep coming back to bite me. Now I'm like a fantastic, like a fantastic driver. If there's like a wide out or something like that, you want me behind the wheel because I am like super like focused and skilled. I never break concentration. I'm never looking at my phone. I'm all about it. And the point is, is that like I had to, I had to learn. I, I, I had to, my, man, my insurance went way up. The car that my parents had gotten for me, it was like, I don't know, buddy, what you, what you going to do? How are you going to get to school? And so I had to, you know, work a little bit extra, and I had to save up for a car, and I, and I had to do all of that. Again, there's nothing more dangerous than being shielded from our misliving. And God, because he loves you, because he's good, he allows you to feel the consequences of your misliving so that it brings you to a place of repentance and humility, and then it brings you back under alignment to his authority. We actually go, you know what, I don't want to pattern my life in that way that leads to death. I want to actually pattern my life after him. Is this making sense? So God is not out to get you, hurling down these horrible consequences on you or punishments because he's upset and he's lashing out. It's because he deeply cares for you. And the, there's a whole book of the Bible um, called Judges where um, that cycle of, of sin and misliving and curse sort of um, 
is just detailed again and again and again. So this is, um, could you move to the next slide? Thank you so much. So um, in, in the book of Judges, you see this cycle happen at least a dozen times. It's a history book that tells the, about the people of God. And, um, and you can tell at the top of the circle, the top of the cycle, um, that God's people are faithful and they're following after him. But then in the next phase of the cycle, God's people disobey him willfully and habitually. And then what happens after that is God's people end up oppressed by a rival kingdom. They're either hauled into slavery of some kind or um, they're enemy occupied at the least. And so life, they're, again, in that phase of the cycle, they're experiencing uh, a deep uh, sense of consequence for their misliving. And so they turn back to God at the bottom of the cycle. I don't know if you can see that, but God's people, they cry out to God and they cry out to him for forgiveness. And then God raises up or sends a judge, um, people like Samson and Deborah and people like that to preach repentance, forgiveness, and allegiance back to God. And they do that and then God dis- uh, delivers them or he restores them and he blesses his people. And then the cycle begins again. And if you uh, have lived a lot of life, you see this kind of thing happen in your life. You see it in other people's life that you care about. But this is, an unfortunately, a very common cycle in the story of the Bible. It happens again and again and again and again. Now, the problem with that cycle is not God, Right? God is actually capable, and he's good, and he's patient enough to kind of keep that cycle up as, as frustrating as that is. But it's way too devastating for the people of God. It's way too devastating for us. See, God's redemption has this really bright future, and we're not just destined to be in that horrible cycle of judgment and consequence and all of that. God has something much, much better for us. And so uh, essentially what God is saying in, in, uh, through the gospel and uh, letters like Galatians is that, listen, you guys, you're not able to live up to the law. As, as it's good for you, but, but you're not actually able to live up to it. And so because of that, you find yourself on this toxic cycle that leads to more judgment and consequence and everything else. And he says, if it were up to you, then every generation would be caught up in this cycle with like inherited blessing and innocence and then a season of like prolonged willful idolatrous sin and then you'll end up in this kind of curse and consequence and it just goes around and around and around and around. The reason why I belabor this point is because I think it matters and I think for many of us we've been caught up in these cycles for a long period of time. We wonder why God is not blessing us or we wonder why everything in our life seems to be unraveling and we don't stop to think that maybe there's a habitual type of disobedience. Maybe we're finding ourselves in this cycle where we're not actually living, we're recklessly driving the car and we're getting ourselves into trouble. So God is way too committed to redemption for us to leave us like this, to allow this to be our story. He's saying, I love you too much to let that be the story, for that cycle to be on repeat. So what does God do? What does God do in order to um, resolve this, this issue? Well, he breaks the cycle. According uh, to um, verse 13, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. That's really an interesting turn, isn't it? That 
We are the ones who deserve the curse. We're under the curse, but he became a curse for us. And then that line um, from Habakkuk, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, but he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So what God did to resolve that toxic cycle of sin and consequence and curse is he actually broke the cycle himself and he broke the power of the curse that was over us. And it's very telling about God that he does this not through a show of force. You know, um, what people were expecting when Jesus came was like a revolutionary Messiah, a Messiah who took up arms and went to battle. But he did just in a different way and he was going after the actual enemy, which was not Rome, it was actually the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible says that he became cursed. But in him being cursed, he actually flipped it around and cursed evil, sin, and death. Isaiah chapter 53 details out the uh, suffering Messiah that he was wounded and he was stricken and he was beat for our iniquity. And what looks like a complete and total, absolutely awful defeat and a failure of the Messiah turns out to be this incredible victory. And this amazing victory. For uh, look, look with me at Ephesians chapter two and verse fourteen. It says, "He himself is our peace." He's talking about a very similar theme, actually, to the theme in uh, in Galatians. He says, "He is our peace," meaning Jesus who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, sounds a lot like Galatians, thus making peace. But then notice this last line, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now there's a ton of really amazing wordplay in this passage. I love this is seriously one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, but the wordplay is this. By Jesus going to the cross and being killed, he killed death and its power over us. And the way that this is written is actually talking about a very violent uh, kind of overthrow. Like Jesus is violently overthrowing the kingdom of darkness and he does it through his own sacrificial death. So you're meant to feel the paradox, and I hope that you do. We could also look at Colossians 1, which tells a very similar story. My favorite, though, is from Revelation chapter 5, which is a book of the Bible that we hardly read. Um, and we, we're actually going to be doing a series either on the book of Revelation or eschatology, the, the study of the end times here eventually. But... Um, this is what Revelation chapter 5 says. It says, then one of the elders said to me, so this is a group of angels uh, talking to a guy named John, and he says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and the lamb had seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that is sent out into all of the earth. Okay, so there is uh, so much here, but this is what I want you to catch. I want you to see the paradox of the Messiah's work. Essentially, the angels are saying to John, 
don't worry, look over there, you'll find the king. And the angels describe the king as the victorious lion who is, um, is, is, is there. He says, uh, the lion from the tribe of Judah. So that's what the angels say to look for. But when John looks, what he sees is the slain lamb. So not the victorious king, but the slain lamb, the one who sacrificially gave his life, became a curse, became sin in the language of Romans. This is a powerful, powerful image. He is a victorious lion. Oh, wait, double take. He's actually the slain lamb. This paradox is kind of like an optical illusion, um, like this one here. Um, When you first look at it, you see one thing, but then you, you look at it some more, or you look at it again, and you see actually something completely different. You, there's, a, there's a completely different side to this image. There's a completely different meaning to this image. And all it takes is for you to kind of look at it once and then look at it again, and you can see both. It's, rem, it's remarkable. That, and that is like the paradox um, of Jesus on the cross. He is the victorious lion. He is the lamb who was slain. He's not either or. He's actually both and. And this is the, both the paradox and the power of the redemption of God. And this is how he does it. He, he breaks the cycle of, uh, and the curse of sin. And he does this um, to, like, you remember that cycle that I showed you, that toxic cycle that I showed you. He, he, what he's doing is he's playing his part in the arc of God's redemption. So um, this is far more what God's vision and design is for, not just the, uh, the, the previous one. Actually, would you, would you mind, Stephen, putting up the last, um, uh, the, uh, the cycle of sin from Judges one more time? So this is what humanity b- before Christ is caught up in, just this cycle, this toxic cycle. And now back to um, the story arc, please. Yes. And instead, this is what God has done through the cross. Uh, The story arc of God's faithfulness to redeem the world. So the project started out with God creating the universe for flourishing in relationship to him. Because of rebellion, we rejected God's good vision. And then evil and sin and the kingdom of darkness contaminated God's good world and has plagued society ever since. But, But the good news is that God has promised to redeem and to restore the broken world through Messiah. And then in the opening pages of the Gospels, we see Jesus bursting onto the scene, announcing the good news of the kingdom. And then on the cross, Jesus absorbed the curse. He absorbed the weight, the full effect of humanity's evil, all of my sin on the cross. And then the first evidence of his true victory is he rises from the dead. And then he sends the spirit in the same breath to launch the church. And then the final promise, which is still yet to be realized, is that he is coming back to complete his mission and to make all things new. So this is how God is about resolving the conflict, resolving the toxic cycle, resolving the problem of evil in the world. He actually enters into the broken story and he becomes the curse for us. It's this incredible, beautiful thing that we need to understand. So um, before we're done, I just have a couple of reflections. Um, And the first one is this, that not only was God in Christ 
redeeming us or freeing us from slavery. He's also needing to free us from the idolatry and sin that led to our slavery in the first place. Does that make sense? So it's not just like the effect of evil, but it's also like, well, what about me? I'm still (laughs) prone to it. I'm still prone to evil. I, I still fall into those patterns. So he needs to free me from slavery. He also needs to free me from um, the uh, idolatry and sin that led to me to be enslaved in the first place. The second thing is that this redemption is about my salvation. It's about me going to heaven. But it's about so much more than you and I going to heaven. It's also about realizing the promise that God made to Abraham. It's also about getting back to um, the plot of God's redemption all along. So, for example, um, we, we talk a lot about what we're saved from. We're like saved from sin. We're saved from evil. We're saved from the curse and all of that, yes. But we're also saved for something. We're saved for life in the kingdom of God. We're saved for a life filled with the spirit of God. We're saved for a life of, uh, of obedience to God and partnering with God and realizing the promise that God has made to Abraham. So there's so much more to your salvation than just like, hey, you're about 30 years too early. One day you're going to need to go to heaven. And when you do, you've got the ticket in hand. So much more than that. God has invited you into a life today, a purpose today. And the way that God accomplishes that is um, found in verse 14. Last verse for today. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of his spirit. The way that God accomplishes this victory in us is by promising the Holy Spirit. And um, A.W. Tozer famously said that the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for your life. In other words, this um, this is exactly the life that you were meant to live. In fact, Romans calls it Uh, The law of the Spirit. He says you don't actually want the law of the Torah. You want the law of the Spirit. Where you are filled with and empowered with the Holy Spirit. So before we go, I just have a couple of reflections on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what that means for you. Number one, Jesus gives us the community of the Spirit. The community of the Spirit. The Spirit is not given to you only. The Spirit is given to the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body of Christ is referred to as a group of people who are joined together into form one cohesive body where we all have different purposes and functions in it. So the community of the spirit is something that we actually need to grow mature in Christ, that we actually need to fulfill the mission. We actually need one another. And this is why we're so big on community here. This is why we've been telling you for the last month to come to the welcome lunch and basics class today because we want to plug you into community. And we actually need the community of the spirit. The second thing is that he gives us the communion or he gives us communion with the spirit. Um, Uh, John chapter 14 says, uh, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he he says, I'm going to ask the Father. The Father's going to give you another helper, and he's going to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth, and the world can't receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you do. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. 
I will come to you. And then he goes on to describe this like unity that he has with God that we are meant to then have with him and his spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not just an abstract force in the universe. The Holy Spirit is meant to be in you and is meant to like bring you into, draw you into the presence of God. This is, quite frankly, friends, why we planted this church in the first place is because we didn't want to play around and just play church. We wanted to actually invite you into life with God and to teach you how to pray and how to practice the presence of God because this is where real life is at is walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And the rest of Galatians talks so much about this. So when you uh, receive the Spirit of God, you actually receive this helper, this comforter, this advocate who's going to lead you into all the truth. Second to last, he's given us the power of the Spirit. So he's given us the communion of the Spirit, the community of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit to live a holy life. There's way more that I wish we could say about this, but we're quite frankly going to be getting into a lot of this at Riverbend at night starting in June. But, um, you know, a lot of times when we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, we think about the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, like prophecy and healing and miracles and things like that. Those are all very good things that are a part of life with God, which we're going to get to. But a huge function or role of the Holy Spirit is to actually empower you to live a life that is under God's rule. So that you're not actually destined to repeat the mistakes that you've made that put you under the curse and slavery to, the, to sin and all of that in the first place. But now, in Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in order to live a full, vibrant, obedient life to God. And that's another really beautiful thing. And then finally and last... The, he gives us the Holy Spirit um, to do the things that Jesus did. To do the things that Jesus did, like prophesy. When Jesus walked on the earth, everyone kept, uh, were captivated. They were attracted to him because he had this authority that nobody else had. He was teaching with authority, but he was also um, casting out demons and performing miracles and healing the sick and the blind and all of that. He was prophesying over the people and all of that. And he said that we will do even greater things than him when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, actually, it's better for you if I go, because when I go, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be doing more and greater things than I have done um, by the power of my Spirit. It is. It is so, so good. And so uh, when we think about life in the here and now and what we've been saved from, but what we were also saved for, a life of purpose in God's kingdom, we're not just simply saved so that we have a, a card to get into heaven when the day comes. We're actually saved to take part in the life that God has for us, and we're meant to do that in community with one another, in communion with the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of the Spirit to live a holy life. You're not destined for sin any longer, and then to also receive the Spirit for the works and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so th- th- this is why I, I hope that you're encouraged by this message and you realize just the, the beauty of what God has done for you and how you've been rescued and now you've been given this whole new position and now you're a part of this family. So what we want to do is just um, as we close, we're going to spend some more time in worship and in response. But as we do, I, I, I just want to invite you to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. This is uh, mentioned here at the very end of our, 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 our passage that 
um, by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And there's some of you who've been around church for a long time, you've actually heard us talk about the Holy Spirit, or maybe you've read a few books, or maybe you've heard wild and crazy stories about the Holy Spirit, and you're not quite sure if you want anything to do with that. But um, what we believe is that the Spirit has been given, He's been promised, and everything that God has promised us that we need to receive is good. And so we just want to encourage you to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are already there with us, and you've been walking in the power of the Spirit for years now. But others of you, you're like, man, I, I, that's new to me. And so we would just want to invite you to do that today. So would you please stand with me and let's respond. Um, worship team, would you guys come forward? Um, and we'll just, um, again, the, the, uh, it's very human of us to just kind of go, all right, yep, songs, and I think there's going to be communion, and then we'll pray, and then we'll be off to whatever else we're doing here today. But we want to just create room and space for the Holy Spirit to, to move uh, in our gathering. And so what this means is we sort of let our agenda go. So um, as we pray, I just encourage you to just let your agenda go. Your agenda to, to, to um, I don't know, just go grab your kids and go out to brunch or whatever. Just let go of your agenda. I really hope we could just like sing another song here or wish Andrew would just kind of like get off, the, get off the stage or whatever. Like again, all that stuff is, uh, it's human, zero judgment. But just let go of your agenda. And as we seek God together, I just encourage you to open your hands in a posture of receiving. This is just to like symbolize, tell your body to kind of get in line with the fact that God has a promise and that the promise is his Holy Spirit and we want to receive anything that God wants to give us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Pray that you would come now in the name of Jesus and you would fill us. We don't want any gift out there. We don't want any promise out there that you have said is ours that we say no to or turn away from. You've given us your truth. You've given us your word. We've anchored ourselves in you. And you're the one who said, we are gonna receive the promise of the Spirit. You were the one who said that we would have power over darkness, to no longer live in patterns of sin, but to be free in Christ. You are the one who said, you've given us communion with you. You were the one who put it into our minds in the first place that it was possible to spend time with you, to enjoy you, to carry your presence. So God, because you, you said that, we believe you. And because we believe you, we just say yes. We say amen. We say please would you in fact fill us by your spirit. very natural and human for us to just resist a little bit 
especially us, because we are, I don't know, maybe a little bit more sophisticated and cynical and whatever. And again, zero judgment. I just want to ask you, is, are you ready to suspend your cynicism for a moment? Suspend the idea that you know everything or that you know more. And that you're pretty much fine how things are. I kind of like being in control of my own situation. If that's you, then you're kind of limiting the gift and the promise of the Spirit. And I think God's invitation for you is to just suspend your cynicism today. And to instead trust, place faith in Jesus and in his promise. Spirit, come. I see him beginning to stir passion in you. I see him starting to awaken you. And maybe that's an uncomfortable feeling. Maybe it excites you, but maybe it's a mixed whatever bag. encourage you to lean in today as God awakens your, his, your passion for him as he begins to like lift you and, and make you even a bit more awake to his presence right next to you right coming inside of you don't resist comfortable. Go ahead and just lift your hands up nice and high and just say, God, I do want more of you. I don't want to leave anything on the table, any promise you've given us. I want your spirit. I want your power. I want to be close to you. I need you. Notice the freedom when you say, God, I need you. Like, I can't, keep, I can't keep pretending I have it together. I actually need you, dependent on you. like the Lord is stirring in you something new and you feel like, man, this is, God's doing something in my heart right now. I just want to encourage you to go to the prayer wall at the back of the room. We'd love the, the opportunity to just pray over you. Um, my friends I would love to just guide you in deeper into the presence of God. And then as we sing, uh, singing is like a language of the Spirit, okay? So we, 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 when we sing, we're, we're responding. So I might, we, we might be done praying, if you will, but we're still responding to the Spirit. We're still responding to the activity of God. So as we sing, just consider it your language of praise to God. And we also come to the table of communion. And we do that because, man, 
you guys, he's, he's so good. This is the, the symbol of his work on the cross and what it means for us. He told us to do it often in remembrance of him, so that's what we're gonna do. During the next song, come forward, grab the bread and the cup, and then go back to your seat. We'll take it together as one church in a minute. Um, but I just, I encourage you, um, don't resist him. Feel your spirit starting to come awake and notice how the spirit is embracing you and speaking to you. And don't hold back your praise. Give him what you owe him. Give him what he deserves. He's worthy of every praise that we could possibly give. Let's continue in worship.